0: Last week, Sunday evening, we started this series. It's going to be a short series, I think, from the book of James. And so, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James. We're going to look at that passage uh, that um, we had read just a second ago that Sean read for us. And uh, we're going to look at a couple of others in, in James. And I'm calling this sermons from Jesus' little brother. I actually think that it is uh, the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this. He's the most likely candidate of all the Jameses we can think about in the New Testament. Uh, James, it turned out, became really one of the driving forces in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was a big, diverse mix of people. You Remember the day of Pentecost? People were there from all over the place. They had come in. Some of those people went back home and took the gospel with them, of course, but some of those folks stayed, and so you had this huge, diverse community, and James was one of the elders, uh, and he was a a key teaching elder in that church as he tried to help that church grow and thrive. There were problems with poverty. There were problems with uh, racial tensions and and, uh, ethnic divisions and things like that, and he was he was working with that. And what we think, at least I think, the book of James is uh, just some of, the, some of the characteristic teachings. He decides to write these down and send them out to other churches so they can benefit from them. And so I think as we go through here, it's kind of fun to think about what was it like to hear these lessons taught in that Jerusalem church and how would they have been heard uh, in that first setting. And I've gone through and I've picked several topics, which I think James dwells on as he writes this book. And the one I want to talk about tonight is this issue of purity of art. He comes back to this one three or four times. He just sort of circles back around to it. That's the way James does in this book. He'll he'll hit a topic and then he'll go to something else and then he'll maybe talk about two or three other and then he'll come back to that first topic. and, And he talks about this if you have your Bibles in James, uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, but, bef- but I want you to notice the verse that got me thinking. It's actually in chapter 4, verse 8. James chapter 4, verse 8. The last half of verse 8, it says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the way the... NIV translates it. Uh, Wash your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is someone who dealt, I think, every day, every week, in real ministry. He saw what it took to help people grow in the faith. And one of the things that he realized would make the faith work for people is to get rid of doubleness of mind and to get back to and to get to a place of purity of mind or purity of heart. And he hits that enough times that we know that was one of of his uh, crucial issues. Okay, what does that mean, to get rid of double mind? Well, the first place he talks about it is back in chapter 1, the passage that we just heard read. And that was, Sean, that was the living that you... You know, that was actually really good. I, I, when I was listening to you read it, that translation was really good, I think, for this, this concept that we're trying to explore. Turn to James chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 8 again. I'm not going to read it out of uh, the living. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This is the same concept of, of being double-minded. What does that mean? What, what is it that he has in mind I think he's seeing something that has cropped up in different people's lives at different points, being double-minded. The word that he chooses here, sometimes it's translated doubting, sometimes it's translated wavering. When you ask, don't waver. When you ask, don't uh, discriminate, don't judge, don't be Uh, in two minds. And actually the word he chooses is that word to have a double judgment, to be seeing things on both sides of the coin at once. Um, To judge both ways at the same time. And then he described what, what that's like. It's like being a wave. It's like being tossed around, whatever's happening, you you get blown this way, and then you get blown this other way. You're not stable. You're not steady. Because you don't have sufficient foundation. I think what he's describing, uh, we, could disc- we could talk about it in various ways, but I think he's talking about the, the phenomenon of half-in, half-out Christianity. You know, and this is, I've said this before in a different way from this pulpit, this is the most miserable way to be a Christian. is to be a half-in, half-out Christian. I believe it, but not all the way. I'm committed to it, but not fully. I'm going to obey, but I'm going to withhold a little bit just in case. Half-in, half-out Christianity. It's a miserable way to be a Christian. I see the beauty of Christianity, but I don't receive the beauty of Christianity. I know enough of the truth of Christianity to be convicted of my sins, but I never commit enough to Christianity to actually come to peace about my sins. I know the power of Christianity But because I won't give myself over, I don't receive the power of Christianity. Half in, half out Christianity. And every one of us is going to struggle with this from time to time. This is is, is going to be an ongoing temptation, even for very mature Christians, even for very strong Christians. There are going to be times when we are in two minds about committing ourselves and giving ourselves over to God. But if you want the peace, if you want the power, if you want the blessings, there's only one way to do it, James says. Go all the way. And as long as you are living in that halfway covenant, if you, as long as you are living halfway, trying to have a one-foot, in God's kingdom, and just in case, I'll just keep the other foot out here, in case it doesn't go well, I can can run when necessary. As long as that's going on, then you're not going to receive the full blessings and the full peace of what Christianity has to offer. Every one of us has to make that decision. Every one of us has to make that choice. Jesus invites us, and we see him in his ministry, inviting his own disciples who've you know, know about him and, and, and have followed him, he says, who do you really think I am? It's the turning point for Mark and Matthew and Luke. It's kind of a literary climax. Who do you think I am? A lot of people are saying all kinds of things about me, I know. Who do you think I am? And the disciples, sometimes through Peter, sometimes all of them together, we're sure it was a decision for the whole group, said, we think you're the Christ. We think you're the son of God. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about him? And how much are you willing to put your weight down on that belief? How much are you willing to commit yourself that Jesus Christ really is Lord. He really deserves for me to obey him in everything. How much? James has seen it again and again and again, we imagine, in the Jerusalem church. And we see it around us today, and we see it in our own lives. To the extent I hold myself back from fully putting my weight down on the lordship of Jesus Christ, to that extent... I'm robbing myself of the full power of Christianity. James comes to this in a different way a little bit later in chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and look down at verse 13. Verses 13 down through verse 17 are an interesting discussion. James talks about what it's like to be tempted, talks about what it's like to, even people who've been Christian for quite some time, to be dragged down into sin. But I want to start with where he ends. Look at verses 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, Who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Where does good stuff come from in this world? Where does it come from? James says it comes from God. God is the source of good. How much good? All the good. All the good things that are in this world come from God. Can you see that that's the case? Can you observe the connection back to God? No, because God's invisible. I can't see that with my eyes. But the truth is, as the good creator, everything that is good in the world comes to us from God. Everything. Is your conscience... A good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good gift? Every good gift comes from God. Is it a good gift? Where does your conscience come from? It comes from God. Your desire to do what's right, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's good. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Every good thing comes from God. It doesn't mean... This, nothing in the Bible, especially nothing in James's preaching, says to you, just be passive, lay back, and let God do everything. The way God's good gifts are expressed are through you. Nevertheless, the best part of you is always more God than you. That's not just James, that's the whole Bible. And so your desire to do what's right, your desire to follow God's word, your desire to be the kind of person who can come to the judgment day and have God say, well done, good and faithful servant. All of that is actually God in you, God working through you, God expressing himself in your mind, in your heart, in your desires. If you want to have purity of heart, if you want to to stop wavering between two opinions and finally plant your feet and say, this is where I am, this is where I stand, lean in to the voice of God that says, do us right. Yield to it again and again and again. Let yourself be trained by it. God is there trying to give you life through your own conscience, through the teaching of the word, through your own desire to do what's right. Let him have his way with you, and you will have purity of heart. In contrast, James kind of talks about the other side of the equation. What makes us sin? He says, don't think it's God. God, That's not what God is doing. God's the one that's in you saying, do the right thing. God's not the one who's trying to tempt you. Look at verses 13 and following. When tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anybody to evil. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's our own evil desires, James says, that leads us into sin, that leads us into these pitfalls again and again and again. I raised kids, and now I'm getting to watch my kids raise their kids. I find the different psychological phases of children very interesting. Two years old is is an interesting stage. We talk about the terrible twos. It actually starts before they're two, about 18 months. And it goes until they're 18 years old. No, it really is a phase. It lasts for a while. It's first dawning on them that they are separate from their parents and they can actually say no. And that becomes an addiction. It's funny to watch it. Even when it's something they want, having to say the words yes is painful. And they would, even desiring the ice cream, they'll say no. It's, it's. And then five-year-olds but it is a rare five-year-old who, at some point, doesn't threaten to run away from home. There's something about being that age that makes you just chafe under the need to submit to the authority of your parents. Who's keeping you safe? Who's taking? Who's supplying your needs? Who is who's protecting you from evils? You still don't know enough to even know our evils out there. Dangers out there that would snuff out your life. Who's doing that? And yet, if I did it. You probably did it. At some point, fantasize about running away from home and how sad they'll feel then. If you do run away from home, you're running away from everything that keeps you safe and alive. And everything that gives you a chance to grow. I think we really misunderstand sin. James here is trying to get us to think about it the way it really looks. Our most sophisticated adult sins are about like five year olds threatening to run away from home. What's God? the source of everything good. If you really do rebel against him, your own desires saying, I don't want to submit. I don't want to do what he said. Even though what he's telling you to do is actually the way you were meant to function as a human being. I just don't want to. If you run away from him, you're actually running away from the source of life. No wonder James says, you let that process reach full growth what's it going to lead to? Death. What else could it possibly lead to but death? God, who made us and who blesses us moment by moment, wants to keep us safe just as parents want to keep their children safe. He wants to keep us where it's warm and where we have a chance to grow and develop. If we run away from him, We are running towards our own destruction. James doesn't mince any words. He tries to help us understand. We need to purify our hearts. Those desires that lead us away from God are not going to help us. He comes, he circles back around to this theme. He actually touches on it a couple of other places, but he circles back around to this theme in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 4, and that's where we have that verse about being double-minded and having purity of heart. Chapter 4, verse 1 and following. What causes fights and quarrels among you? I, I can imagine the Jerusalem church having plenty of those fights and quarrels. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You lust and don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you don't have it because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You just want to spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, being an enemy of God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's purity of heart right there. He says, there we are, biting and devouring each other, arguing with each other, each person accusing the other, each person trying to find someone else to blame their problems on. And James says again and again and again, this world is like that. Turn back to God. As long as you are trying to solve problems in terms of this world, you are going to be fighting and being bitten. You're going to be fighting and, okay, that one wouldn't work, and being fought against. That's just going to happen. Human beings constantly throw themselves into these struggles. And we can really get caught up in these struggles and do things that really hurt people around us without even knowing it. And James says to this congregation that he's preaching to and now that he's all the congregations that he's writing to he says it's because you're trying to have it two ways why can't i be friends with god and still follow the rules of the world why can't i do both and james says the world Is not just sort of bad. The world is fallen. And God is here offering you the path of life. And the world is just inventing new ways of dying. It looks seductive, it looks attractive, it's certainly easier and less stressful to follow the path of the world. But it is the path that leads to death. James says, choose life. Choose God. The author of all that's good. Follow him. And all the rest of these things, here he's quoting his older brother, I think. He's he's channeling that idea. All the rest of these things that you worry about, you'll get... What you need. He says, you know, we we fight with each other because we don't have everything, and 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 we don't have everything that we want, certainly. And he says, even what we ask for half the time is corrupted by our actual motives for why we want it. Now it's true that when you pray to God, He does He's not a genie, He doesn't instantly grant you everything you ask for. I've testified to this before in my own life. I am so grateful that God tells me no more than he tells me yes. Some of the things I've prayed for were so foolish, they would have ruined my life. They would have shrunk my life down. Some of the things that God has given me, even though it wasn't what I was praying for, in fact, it was the opposite of what I was praying for at the time, some of the things that God has given me, now I look back and say, yep, that's what I should have been praying for. I just was too foolish to know it at the time. That's happened to me multiple times, and probably if you evaluate your life, you can see that in your life as well. We put all of our weight down on God. We put all of our hopes in God. We say, whatever it takes, whatever I have to do to turn away from the world, it's worth it to have God. And then God, the source of everything that's good, gives us what he knows we need. Look at verse 5. James explores this a little bit theologically. He says, or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but he shows favor to the humble. This is one of James's key. If you want, if you look at your own life and say, I'm really feeling much more like the wave of the sea. Some days I feel pretty Christian. Some days I feel pretty worldly. If that's, that's characterizing your life, James has a prescription for you. This is something for you to think about and something for you to engage in that will help you to have more of the purity of heart that he's talking about. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. I actually think this comes from James living many years helping people overcome sin, helping people move deeper into the grace of God. And he says there are times when the only way forward is to grieve before God. Not grieve because of bad things that have happened to you. Not grieve because of bad circumstances. We grieve for those too, and we mourn for those, but that's not what James is talking about here. He says, sometimes the reason why our life is unstable, we're bouncing back and forth, is because there is sin that we refuse to acknowledge. We refuse to look at. We are keeping this sin as our pet. We are cordoning it off from the Word of God. We are making it invulnerable to every sermon and every Bible class and every reading of the Scripture and every pang of conscience. We are saying, This is mine not yours and James says the way forward is to finally submit yourselves to God to say in this area this precious area this, this pet area this pet sin of mine that I've nourished and allowed to grow in my heart this is what I have to kill this is what I have to turn away from this is what I have to let God destroy within me so that I can live. Weep. Wail. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Sometimes that's what it takes in order to purify our hearts so that every good thing we depend on God. James He doesn't say these things to make you sad. He says these things to make you joyful. But real joy, true joy, is not easy. Because we live in a fallen world that resists. And James says these things because he knows this is the way that I can put my full weight down on God. I can depend on what God wants to give me. And I can then receive The peace and power of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that God has done, and week after week, Jeremy and I have the privilege of standing up and proclaiming this good news in one form or another. God, who should be your enemy, loves you so much that he sent his one and only son so that you don't have to die, you can live. This is good news. If you need to respond to this good news tonight, if you want prayers or you want to ask for something from the church, or if you are ready to receive baptism, believing in Jesus, ready to confess his name, turn away from your sins, and have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. If these are things that we can do for you, just come forward. Tell us what we can do while we stand and sing this next song.